Hello, and welcome to Cisco Tech Beat. I'm your host, Lisa Meek. Today, we're talking about connected justice and how technology is transforming the court and prison system. Joining me is Daniel Stewart, Cisco's senior advisor for state and local government. Daniel has a fascinating background. It really sounds like something out of a movie. His life story is not only inspiring, but also one that led him to addressing issues in the justice system. Hey, Daniel, how's that for an introduction? I I feel pretty important now. (laughs) That was pretty good. (laughs) I'm just a lucky guy. I like to look at myself as a lucky guy who's been very fortunate. (laughs) Well, sometimes people say uh, there's a difference between luck and hard work, but my guess is it's probably a combination of two, right, when it comes to you? We all have our lives and we have our our paths we travel, and sometimes we might take a wrong fork in the road. I took a couple, but I'm a I'm very happy to be where I'm at and doing what I'm doing and and taking, as you said, some of those life experiences and putting them into my work. And I've always done that. So it's it's really exciting. Okay. Well, I want to hear your life path. I've heard a little bit about it, but for our listeners, it is a long and winding road. So are we cool to start from the beginning? I'm I'm an open book, as you know. Uh, It's all on the table. So let's go for it. Sounds good. It is. By the end of this, I promise our listeners, you guys are going to be like, wow, this guy, because it is a it is a wow story. All right. So first, Daniel, tell me where you grew up. I grew up in the mean streets of Pawtucket, Rhode Island uh, and Cumberland, Rhode Island. It was a, an interesting childhood. Uh, and, you know, like many kids in this country, uh, you know, broken family and having to grow up without a dad for most of it. And, you know, th- those kinds of things were were very difficult and really set me on a course in life, which, again, took those forks in the road. So you grow up. You know, and some people take various paths, right? Some people go out of, once they finish high school, they go to college, they'll go right into the workforce, they'll join the military. What did you do? Well, I wasn't the smartest kid in class, so I have to put that on the table first. So I, uh, I went through high school and I wasn't doing very well. And uh, toward the end, I started to improve a little bit. And uh, my mother really pressured me and said, look, you know, I, I need you to graduate high school. And my teachers uh, took the time necessary to give me some opportunity. And eventually I uh, decided I was going to go into the Air Force. And uh, I think in a, in a way, a couple of teachers might have given me a gift called a, a d- diploma. You figure out your way through high school and you decide to join the Air Force. How did you come to that decision? I certainly uh, had trouble in high school. Today, I understand it to be that I had attention deficit disorder. But back then in, in the 60s and 70s, they just slapped you in the head and said, straighten up. Uh, there was no focus on that type of thing. So I really didn't think I was intelligent enough, to be honest, to go to college. I didn't see my way at any time of going to college. I was having a hard enough time in high school. So I went into the military and thought that, well, that would be one way that I could maybe escape Uh, Rhode Island, and uh, be able to make something out of myself. How was it in your time in the military? Tell me about it. I went to basic training in uh, San Antonio, Texas, Lackland Air Force Base, spent some time in Biloxi, Mississippi at Keesler Air Base. I was stationed in Rapid City, South Dakota at Ellsworth Air Force Base, and my final station was Plattsburgh Air Force Base in upstate New York. And it was really um, an interesting time in life because I had already developed some drinking and drug problems as a high school student, let alone then being in the military. And it was kind of a, well, at times a bit of a drink fest. And uh, certainly uh, going through the military, it was was a time in my life where I think really I learned some discipline, but at the same time, it was uh, was a non-disciplined environment at times as well. So I, uh, I really had a great time and I met some great people and I loved serving my country. 
and that that's the positive of it. But uh, there were some uh, there were some drawdowns to it as well. How long did you serve in the Air Force, and what happened after you left the Air Force? I was in the military from 1980 to 1988. I decided to leave because I really didn't feel as though I was going to be able to advance well anymore. I thought maybe if I became a civilian, I could walk out and the world would be wonderful. And I became a civilian and I walked out and I I had actually quit drinking while in the military. I was actually asked to not drink anymore (laughs) while in the military. And and I was sober when I got out of the military, but then I, I met up with some friends that were civilians now and uh, we had an apartment, uh, but it didn't take too long before I went back to drinking again. And then shortly thereafter, things really fell apart. And I actually ended up being homeless um, in, in the city I was living in. And, and that was really the ultimate bottoming out that occurred. Uh, the fact that I, I suddenly had nowhere to go. And that was very difficult to deal with. And uh, luckily, I had some friends that had known me when I was sober, knew that I was attending some 12-step programs, and they lured me back in. You know, it was like the just when you think you're out, they draw you back in, right? So uh, I was back into recovery. And from that point forward, it was really an opportunity for me to change my life and get on a better track. And, uh, and it's been good. It's those people, those pivotal people at those moments of crisis that really make the difference. And your story, unfortunately, is not uncommon, especially when it comes to people serving in the military and they leave and they don't know what to do with their life afterwards. I remember in 1987, uh, Colonel Ralph Hensel, uh, my commander, said to me, he said, you know, I'm going to send you to rehab. And I said, Colonel, you're going to kill my career. He said, no, I think I'm going to save your life. That was a turning point. And then the person that approached me when I had hit my total bottom after I'd left the military, uh, it was like the colonel gave me uh, sight into the possible. And uh, the person that took me up from under the bridge gave me safe haven and a place to sleep and a chance at moving forward with recovery. So uh, those folks and all of the other ones that helped me through those years to today. I'll have 32 years clean and sober in December. And all of the people along that line have been the the lifeblood for me to be a better human being and have an, uh, an opportunity to be a better part of society. Daniel, I know that this is a podcast so people can't see, but I am showing you my arm where I have goosebump raising moments of it. But it is, those are the stories that really make it and make a difference. And you, you you obviously are now at Cisco and there's a huge, you know, pass in between from you becoming 32 year, years sober right now to where you were. So tell me about what happened once you were able to land into your friend's, you know, place for a warm place to sleep in Plattsburgh, New York. It's not the warmest of places, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it could get pretty darn cold up there. Yeah, it, it, it was it was really interesting because I, I had no job and I, I went over to the labor department and uh, the person there said, you a veteran? I said, yeah, I was in the Air Force. And he said, well, maybe we can give you a, a, a job somehow. And I ended up, uh, my first job was actually pumping gas, right? So I was pumping gas at a, rest, uh, at, at a gas station in Plattsburgh. And then I started to drive tractor trailer. I had a class license that allowed me to be a uh, driver for a tractor trailer. And I did a couple of jobs like that and landed a union job with St. Johnsbury Trucking Company, which covered the Northeast. And I did that for a few years. And then uh, that company went out of business with a one-hour notice to all of its employees. And I remember sitting in the in the break room and, and these, these guys that I, w- I was working with that had kids in college and stuff, 
you could just see the despair on their faces. And I was reading the paper and it said in there that there was a, a city council seat. Uh, the seats had been expanded in the city. And I was, I was a political buff. I mean, when I was a little kid at 12 years old, my mother had to pull me away from the Nixon hearings, right, from Watergate. When do you think the president found out about Watergate and the cover-up? I haven't any idea, Senator. I haven't any idea at all. Because as I testified before, because I was glued to the TV and she said, there's something wrong with this kid. Go out and play baseball, right? So I always had the political bug. When I drove track to trailer, those overnight runs, you'd be listening to Larry King and all these other stations, and it was all politics, and I loved it. From the nation's capital, Mutual Radio presents The Larry King Show. Network radio's most listened to... And I said, you know, maybe that's my future. Maybe I should run for city council. And I did. But I had to call up a few of my friends in recovery and ask them over to my apartment to talk about it. And I said, here's what I want to do. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, you seriously want to do this? You're in upstate New York. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in recovery. You're an, un, an unemployed truck driver right now is, is the best job uh, interview city council. And I said, yeah. And they helped me to run and I won. And I, I won, and I won by the widest margin of victory of any city council seat that year. And I think it's because I, I didn't have a job and I was walking around to people's houses so much saying, please vote for me. They started inviting me in for dinner. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was kind of crazy. And I won and I, I won two more times. And then um, I had actually decided to leave politics uh, but then get dragged back into it and asked to run for mayor. And I ran for mayor and I won. And I was not expected to win by any means. I was 30 points behind 90 days before the election, but I ended up winning by 87 votes in the end, I think it was, something like that. And, uh, and I became mayor, and I was mayor for three terms. And, uh, and then after being a mayor, uh, the governor spoke to me and said, I need somebody to oversee the Correctional Institution of New York. I said, well, what does it entail? And we talked about it, and I thought, wow, what a job. And he said, you know, and this was Governor Pataki. He said, you know, it's you've always been honest about who you are. You're a you know, recovering alcoholic. You're a recovering drug addict. Uh, you've been homeless before. All those things are common knowledge to everybody. He said, what do you think the population is inside the prisons and jails? He said, you know, it'd be good to have somebody who could speak to these issues and encourage more education and encourage the recovery elements. He said, I think it's a job for you. And uh, I worked with his team, and sure enough, I was a, a unanimously uh, approved by the state senate to become the chairman of the State Commission of Correction, which is the oversight agency of the prison system, the county jails, Rikers Island in New York City, and all the police lockups and the secure juvenile facilities at that time. So uh, suddenly, from a guy in 1988 who was occasionally stealing a little food off the shelves of places in order to have something and going to the food shelf, I was now the guy that was actually overseeing a correctional environment uh, and its regulatory operation. And I, I'm very, very proud to have had all of those jobs, city council person, to being mayor, to being chairman of the State Commission of Correction. I can't tell you how encouraging that was, but during that time, I always made sure to bring my, my brand of recovery. When I, when I visited a county jail, I'd ask the sheriff to see the programming area and ask, do you have 12-step programs coming in here? So I hope that I made an impacting change uh, of bringing my life experiences into those jobs. Daniel, do you ever give yourself a chance to sit back and think about from being literally living under a bridge 
to becoming mayor, to becoming in charge of the correctional systems, you know, within New York, that is phenomenal. I mean, that says something about who you are and what you do and the transparency that you bring and how you want to help people. Yeah, but you know, I, I never in life really looked at it through that through that vision, right? Because I was living it. So when you're living something, I think as you go along, you're just living who you are. And you're you're taking aspects of your life and applying them in uh, to how those things, you know, how you're going to operate in your job and, and be the best you can be at it. And I, I certainly was, you know, I, I tried my best in each job to be the best person I could for the people that had elected me and for the governor that appointed me. And I served four governors as chairman of the uh, Commission of Correction, uh, Republican and Democrat. And I, I, I think that it's when I look back, yes, I, I look back today and I think to myself, holy cow, uh, you know, I wasn't under the bridge long, but I was under the bridge long enough. And when you surface, and this is, I think, something people don't understand about homelessness, unless you have a lease or a mortgage and you're just bouncing sofa to sofa, you're homeless. You don't have your own place. Whether you're under the bridge, whether you're you know, sheltered or unsheltered, there's homelessness issues, the working poor that are living in their vehicles, right? Th- that dynamic, when I look back at it, yeah, I look back and I'm like, holy cow, you know, how did I make it? Uh, but I made it but I couldn't have made it without all of those people. How does your life intertwine with Cisco? Well, everybody ends up at Cisco in the end. So <laughs> how does it How does it end up at Cisco? It's really interesting. I have never had a technical bone in my body. I, I was not a technical guy in any way. But when I was chairman, there was certainly a change starting to happen in corrections. Telemedicine was being introduced into some of the facilities to try to help with that. And and then there were other things coming along like family visitation by video. And that's where the bug hit me. That's where I started to really be intrigued in how different elements of the delivery of services to the incarcerated population could take place. Now, the prison system ran under its own commissioner. Rikers ran under its own commissioner. The sheriffs ran the jails. And I was the oversight agency guy. And uh, what I would try to do is bring to them ideas, uh, because when I would see them, I would get excited and say, hey, this is maybe something we should be looking at. And I would bring that to them and say, you know, there are ways to maybe deliver this, that and the other. After I left government, Cisco actually pursued me. I never bought anything from Cisco. Cisco pursued me and said, hey, you know, we're building this thing called Connected Justice, and we'd like your input on some of this. Now that you're out of government, can you talk to us about it? And and I went over and talked to him, and about an hour and a half later, the guy said, I'm going to be sending you a, a job offer. We'd like you to work with us to build this Connected Justice thing. And I was excited at that point, but I was also scared to death because I have imposter syndrome like everybody else does. How am I going to walk into a tech company and be legitimate? What are people going to think about me? Are they going to look at me as a fraud? <laughs> you know, I, I think we all have imposter syndrome, and I certainly had it. Well, okay, you're nine years in at Cisco now, is that correct? Yeah, nine and a half. Nine and a half years in, do you still have that uh, imposter syndrome? No. <laughs> I, I learned very quickly that uh, what Cisco had hired me to do was to be an interpreter of sorts, to translate the language. Uh, of technology to the line of business guy like myself or lady, you know, whoever that man or woman who's in charge of something to be able to say to them, 
here's the technology, here's what it means to you, here's how it can be delivered to you, and you can utilize it in your line of business and in your flow. And having that ability to, in state government, local government, uh, in justice areas, to be able to talk to the customer and say, this is why it should make, make sense to you. And to help our sales teams to understand, uh, like during the pandemic, we created a specific platform for visitation into jails and prisons. But while they were building it, they didn't realize the impact they were going to have. And I had to stop them at one point and say, look, folks, ladies and gentlemen, stop. All of you, please listen to me for just a minute. You're not just building a technological solution or platform. You're actually going to save lives doing this. And here's why. And I explained to them the danger of having quarantined housing units inside of a facility with them not understanding or believing what an officer is telling them and they needed access to their family, to hear from their family that this was true, that this is really happening and, and that quarantines have to be done. And, and having officer safety and inmate safety by that, it, people who are incarcerated don't necessarily believe everything they're told by the officer, but they'll believe their family. And we had a huge deployment that we had to do in a major city in this country and we did it in under two weeks. And I told them, you have made an impact that you will never truly be able to appreciate because the bad thing didn't happen, but understand that it could have. And we see the bad thing happening in so many prison populations these days where it is a Petri dish, right? It's a Petri dish of this. And between nursing homes and prisons, aren't those two of the highest numbers of COVID cases? and meatpacking facilities, make it three, right? But in the correctional facility, you're, you're talking about on average 40 to 100 plus people in a housing area. And there's not much air movement going on per se, right? If someone comes in that's infected and people are in that tight enclosed area, you're gonna have spread. There were people in jails that needed to get out of jail that didn't have to be there any longer. They could put them out on release, let them out so they don't get infected when they could depopulate that way, allow the courts to have the connectivity to the, uh, to the offenders and, and the lawyers and to be able to go ahead and depopulate and then within a facility to be able to quarantine, isolate, uh, to be able to socially distance. That was the key to many of them to reducing the spread. And we're very, very happy. I'm personally proud of what was built in order to help to move that forward. And you know, we're not the only player in the game out there, but we are the only one that built built a standards-based capability uh, to do that. We're the first one in the industry that has built that for the correctional facilities, that all of their operations of healthcare, courts, reentry services, parole, probation hearings, all of those things along with family visitation can all take place on a standards base. And I wanna go back to your own personal experience. Working with the New York correctional facilities, you had experience when there was outbreaks of things and with H1N1, right? Yeah, and, and you know, H1N1, uh, when that was occurring, uh, that was actually, I had a call from Rikers Island. <laughs> and they were saying, hey, look, we got a few of our housing units that are gonna go into quarantine. And, and they were worried about the housing unit tipping, which again is meaning going to riot, right? How do you do that? So it was really important for all of us in technology to understand uh, the times have changed, the customer need has changed. Can we go in there and do something about it? And whether it was H1N1 or you know, 10 to 12 years later, you know, during that period of time, it's been a slow buildup of technology and justice. 
but now the major buildup has taken place because of the pandemic. So I don't see things going back over time into the normal way of doing business. I see that it's gonna be a hybrid world. This technology change that occurred is going to change a lot of the ways that not only government, but also private business look at how they do things going forward. And in government, it certainly caused a lot of people that were averse to technology to have to embrace it now and actually are enjoying it. And how hard is it to talk people in the legal system to embracing this. I happen to be married to someone who works in the legal system. He's an attorney. Um, he went kind of kicking and screaming having to do video conferencing for depositions and court appearances and all of those other things saying, this is not gonna work very well, but we're in this reality now. The reality was this, the wheels of justice had to keep moving. And the only way to keep it moving was to deploy as quickly as possible tools that could be used that in the interim, the, uh, the IT directors could work to find out how is it that we're going to do this long term? We don't know how long we're going to be in this thing. What is our long term vision now? So remote capabilities are now part of the long term vision of everybody, everybody in justice, everybody in government. It has to be done. And now for government, they're going to have to react to the fact that a lot of the, the public are going to like this. Oh, I don't have to go to traffic court uh, in person and take time out of work and pay for parking downtown and walk into that building and wait in line. I can actually have a scheduled time to do it. Oh, wonderful, right? You know, all of this has changed for the long term. And those who were kicking and screaming are some of its biggest cheerleaders today. I love that. And it brings in the whole aspect of equity, right? In in the justice system. Can you talk to me about some of this? Because it is, to some degree, really leveling the playing field for so many people. Yeah. You know, when you look at the history of justice in this country, and look, you know, there has been for a long time uh, an inequity as far as the populations that were incarcerated. Uh, the you know just the ethnic backgrounds and such. When you start to look at those variations, what we have to do is we have to keep in perspective. Okay, uh, we know that there are problems of inequity in society. Uh, how can we now take what has happened and bring other elements to the groups that have had inequities to get to the point of being incarcerated? And when we can start now to deliver more e-education when we have tablets being used in correctional facilities and classes being held there, not just for anger management or domestic violence and uh, all these other, but also for how do I get an education while I'm incarcerated? If I'm gonna be in a prison for three to five years, can I get a degree, right? What do we really wanna do when we send people back out, out of these walls? Do we want someone that came in, had no positive influence and goes back out? Or do we want to offer a positive influence to hopefully reduce recidivism? And when they do go out and they're on probation or parole, do we have programs that we can give to them? Well, yeah, that's part of the Cisco you know, Connected Justice platform. We actually have a post-incarceration you know, community supervision platform where with them, they can go ahead and then report in by video to their parole or probation officer instead of having to do it in person all the time. That can keep them on the job and keep the employer happy so that I'm not leaving for half a day to go see my probation officer. But the inequities of society, whatever they are across the board, we've all known they exist. It's just there haven't been really good answers to a lot of it. 
It's this whole cycle that we have, right? So when people get out of prison, how do we keep them from not going onto the streets, having you know somewhat of a little bit of a background like you do? And how can connected justice help when it comes to the homeless part of things? Yeah, and, and that that's the key component. So Track Tech that teamed with Cisco uh, has that platform for people, and you can actually have cognitive therapy. Uh, drug and alcohol recovery programs on it, education programs, but also it, it's it's a check-in type of thing. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Do you have a job? Do you have a place to stay? And within that same platform, it's all embedded with Cisco WebEx, but within that platform, there's also a homelessness app. And this is one of, one of those, I, I'm really excited about this one because you can press the app and it'll bring up every homeless shelter near you. And then you can press on them individually to see whether or not you qualify, men only, women only, families, pets, no pets, that type of thing. And if the uh, shelters wanted to do so, they could put the data up into the cloud and someone could actually book a bed. Now imagine that, booking a bed at a shelter. Now there are some that are homeless that will never wanna stay in the shelter for whatever reason it is. Uh, Some don't find shelters to be conducive with how they wanna live and that's okay. But again, having the device and the capability to reach out for help. And having that platform, I think, is going to help people to make those decisions, critical decisions. Should I go to a meeting or should I, should I go to the bar? Uh, should I go to the meeting or should I go get my drug of choice on a corner? Uh, those are critical decisions. I face them myself in my own life. Uh, I had a year and a half clean and sober when I decided to go back out and drink again. I made a critical decision. It was the wrong decision. It's a decision that drove me to the point of my ultimate bottom. Uh, and then I had to climb back out and go back. You know, I take uh, Lipitor for cholesterol for my heart. And I take it every day. And I don't question it because I know my doctor says that's going to keep me alive longer. Uh, but also I, I go to 12-step meetings. I go to them because if I don't, I know what will happen. I know what will happen if I don't take my recovery of choice for the day, right? And that's what I try to do is make sure that I I take those health choices and make them the priority in my life, even 32 years later. Uh, During the pandemic, recovery meetings have become something special. I attend a meeting in Brighton, UK, a little south of London, every Sunday at 2.30 East. And I talk uh, with my new group of friends that I know. And I can't wait till this pandemic's over because I'm going to take a flight over to the UK and I'm going to go to that meeting in person when they start again. And I'm going to be happy to do that because one, one addict or alcoholic helping another is without parallel. Nothing else can, can help beyond that help. And people who went into jail or prison because they committed their crime while drunk or high It's the highest percentage of all. And they need help when they get out. They need to be able to get on the right track. Track Tech and Cisco, I think, are going to be a good uh, piece of uh, making more of that recidivism rate go down. I love how you explain all of this, too, because I think a lot of times people think of connected justice, right? Of bringing in the video conferencing thing, making things easier that way. But they don't think about this part of it, of something as an app that... Homeless, people may be homeless, but they still have a phone more than likely. About 60% of the homeless population is estimated to have a smartphone. And in many locations, the county agency or city agency actually issues a phone to people because if they do find housing for them, they need to be able to get a hold of them. And think about the pandemic. All right, here's another piece. We actually have taken that track tech platform and we flipped it into a homeless, homeless caseworker platform. Think about the person who doesn't have a job now because of the pandemic. 
the restaurants have closed. This is closed. That's closed. They can't pay their rent. In many places, there were moratorium. Well, when that moratorium is up, what happens? It's eviction court, right? So what do you do? How do you find a way to be able to work with that? And we're actually working with one of our partners because we were asked by a county for eviction court, for a platform for that, because they want to find a way for the landlords and for those renters of homes, apartments, and businesses to still try to be able to hang on to that. If they don't do it, the homeless population is skyrocketing. It's going to happen, right? You can have more homeless families living in cars under the bridge, right? Living in RVs and in California parking lots and getting kicked out of them because they're staying too long. This homelessness situation is going to be compounded by the pandemic eviction rate. And therefore, more sofa surfers like I was in 1988 more people out there with their families than the working poor living out of a vehicle or trying to find a place to stay, they may still have their smartphone. And that's one thing they're gonna, they're gonna try their best to pay the bill on because that's their connection to the world. And hopefully we can have a platform on it, an app that helps them to find the services. I mean, I know that we are both employees of Cisco, so we are drinking the Cisco Kool-Aid. But there is a reason for drinking the Cisco Kool-Aid where one of their mottos is powering an inclusive future for all, be it for the homeless population, be it for the prison population, be it for any of these other things. This is what Cisco believes in to our core coming from the CEO down. What does it say to you to be now working for a company like this? Yeah, um, from the CEO down, from John Chambers to Chuck Robbins to where we are right now, uh, my nine and a half years, the leadership and, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah, I drink the Kool-Aid. But also I know that it goes beyond the it goes beyond the Kool-Aid. Right, it goes to the human element, and both of those leaders, and today Chuck doing such a great job, wanting to end homelessness in Santa Clara County. Cisco, fifty million dollars towards that effort to have the end of homelessness in Santa Clara County by twenty twenty five. I look at the many different organizations that we support, and and the humanitarian efforts, uh, you know, from earthquakes, from hurricanes, the way that we res- we have teams that voluntarily respond to any emergency. Being a part of a company that does that, but now through the pandemic, look, during the pandemic, I told people in Cisco, (laughs) I'm going to admit it now, I told people, do me a favor, get over to the Cisco office, rip out every DX video unit that you see and get it over to that jail. They need medicine and they need court in there right now. We got to do it. And they did it. Our CEO came out, and then I had air cover. Our CEO came out and said we were taking all of our video, you know, anything we had in our in our offices. We were all working from home now. We didn't need those things, right? They sent people in. They sent them to hospitals. They sent them to educational facilities and jails and prisons. They sent them to all of our customer base to keep the world moving, right? When you have a company that is willing to just take its inventory and say, here, take it, please. Make it work. Help the people, right? We didn't ask anybody for payment for that stuff, <laughs> right? I don't know where some of those units are today. I just know I asked people to go in and do it, and they did it. And I'm glad they did it, and I'm glad that we had a company that was on its own already ready to make that decision anyway. Wow. Like, we have mics. Mic drop? Mic drop for that part. It It is so good. I I can't imagine a better person to be a spokesperson for why connected justice matters. 
it is something. I know that this is not the path that you saw yourself after you left the Air Force uh, all those years ago. Look, I'm, I'm 58 right now. Uh, three years ago, I had a heart attack. Two years ago, I had two brain surgeries. Uh, I'm sitting here today as a, like I, like I like to say, a productive member of society. I have a job. Uh, I'm fortunate to be in a, in a field that allowed me to keep my job during the pandemic. All right. Uh, we all know that many people are suffering out there. But the fact is, is that when I look back when I left the Air Force, I dealt with what I had. I had people help me. And I've done my best, as I said, through each one of these jobs to get to where I am. But when you do look back and you say, well, you know, I think everybody does this. You know, the older you get, the more you start to reflect, the more you start to think of what ifs. All of the pain that I had to go through to get to where I am today, I don't think I'd change it for anything. Because what ifs don't exist. They don't exist. All right. What is, is where I'm at. And I need to try to make every day the best it can be and to help others to understand or learn about how things are out there. And certainly with my colleagues, I do that. And the more I interact with our customer base, the more I get to do that. I love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, I love to talk to the subject matter because it's me, because I can honestly speak to it. I don't have to make up a story for a customer to sound cool, right? I'm telling the customer, this is the disaster I was. <laughs> and I still today am a work in progress. I am not, <laughs> I am not finished. I got a long way to go. And uh, Aren't we all, Daniel? Aren't we all? I think we are. I, because there's a lot of, <laughs> there, there are a lot of messes out there, you know? There are. <laughs> there are. And they're laying bare at this time. All right. I want to do some fun things. Are you up for some fun things? Yes. I know that you, earlier you talked about, okay, once this pandemic is over and you can travel again, you see yourself going to the UK. But, you know, like I was thinking three questions that I want to talk about, beach or mountain. Best to my knowledge, I don't think the UK has that many beaches or mountains, but what kind of person are you? <laughs> a um, beach or a mountain person? I am a wind person. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've almost drowned twice in the ocean, so I, I don't want to go to the ocean. Uh, the mountains would be good because there's a lot of wind at the top of the mountain. I, I love wind. I just, I, I remember as a little kid in, on Morris Avenue in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and it was late fall, but it was a very warm day. The leaves had already been falling. It must have been October. And you, know, you, you hear that crinkly sound of the leaves going down the street right on asphalt. And, and the wind was so strong. I remember just putting my arms out and it felt like the wind was going through me. I have been a wind guy since that day. I've never heard of anyone being a wing guy. And so in your time in the Air Force, does that also mean like being the wind person, you're jumping out of airplanes? No, the army guys jump out of the airplanes. <laughs> the Air Force guys fly the airplanes. <laughs> they don't jump. <laughs> Touche. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. <laughs> oh, that cracks me up. Okay. Uh, since we all have been home, question number two, weirdest COVID purchase. Is there a weird one that you have? I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Weirdest COVID purchase. Um, I really needed to get a, um, a certain record for record store day 
but Record Store Day in the United States didn't have this record. So I had to call a friend in Wales, UK, and have him go over and purchase it at a store before they went into lockdown. And uh, they were going into a re-lockdown. And that my weirdest purchase was a, a, a record uh, by the group The The. The The. Is, yeah, The The is one of my favorite groups. What kind of music is it? Uh, it's 80s uh, post-punk. Uh, it's uh, 80s, 90s, and uh, really, really good stuff. In fact, the music is as relevant today in its lyrics as it was back in the 80s. All right, so then this gets us a perfect segue into my last question. Music genre, what is on your playlist right now? Are you a country guy? Probably not. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, 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 storytellers, uh, people who tell stories in their music. Uh, so uh, a lot of uh, Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, um, the, the uh, you know, uh, Depeche Mode different things like that. I, I like that type of, of music and uh, that that's my genre. All right, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. Oh, and I did promise you I would tell you my weirdest COVID purchase. It was ghost pepper pickles. Ghost pepper pickles? Yeah, ghost pepper pickles. What, is, what does that mean? It's pickles that are made with ghost pepper. So like you get the weird vinegary and then the crazy hotness. I, You know, like when you're shopping and you're trying to get all of the last minute food that you can as you're going into lockdown and you impulse buy. Uh-huh. I impulse bought ghost pepper pickles. I've eaten one and no more. I guess my impulse buy would have been coconut water. Yeah, coconut water. I, I had this sudden thing about coconut water. Weird. <laughs> so great. Well, I am I am so thankful that I got a chance to know you and know your story and that so many other people from listening to this podcast will get to know you and your story and really what connected justice means for our, you know, for our world and for our communities and how we can make our world a better place. So I thank you so much for your time and your vision and you living your life and sharing your life in this radically transparent way, which some people would run the other way and want to put it behind them, but you live your life in an open and honest way, which is so refreshing. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Face your fears. You'll be okay. Face your fears. You'll be okay. That is a perfect way to end this. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you.